my failure, one scenario, it happened twice and it took the second time for me to really learn from it. And that was, especially when hiring for a marketing or a growth role within a fast growing startup, you need to wear loads of different hats, but you can never get one profile or a type of person that has experience across all those areas that you need them to take ownership of. Hey, Amir, welcome to the show. Hi, Karim. Thanks for having me. So before we jump in, what is one thing you know to be true about life that most people would probably disagree with you on? <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit of a cynic. So I think one thing that I've resided to is the demise of humanity. <laughs> and AI doesn't help. <laughs> well, I, 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 AI is just a tool, but um, when we talk about saving the planet and all that kind of good stuff i think we're just slowing down the inevitable as we should <laughs> but ultimately i think accepting human nature in terms of we're a self-destructive species really helps to offload some of the everyday pressures of life in terms of almost like controlling what you can versus like concerning about perhaps some things that couldn't be that that aren't necessarily within your control and are going to be happening absolutely anyway, absolutely yeah. yeah interesting awesome Cool. Yeah, I mean, th that got me thinking, man. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting <laughs> take on it for sure. Kind of reminds me of my, my co-founder. I guess like he he would share like some some similar traits in that regard in terms of like just calling the spade the spade, you know. And there, there's no need to sugarcoat things that are that, that, that are that are bound to happen. So I guess to help me set the stage, do you want to tell folks a little bit about yourself before we re rewind the tape? Yeah, sure. So my name is Amir Jobandi. I look after marketing and growth at Paper Cup. I've been here for about three and a bit years and my background is predominantly within b2b marketing for tech companies usually at a startup or scale-up stage um, i start i studied computer science graduated in 09 and after i graduated i quickly realized uh, that i need to pay rent so i got the first job that i could which was doing it recruitment sold my soul hated it and ended up at a high tech company where we were providing solutions to financial services. There I got an opportunity to dabble in marketing for the first time. And I realized that a lot of my uh, later modules in my degree was actually coming handy around e-commerce, online businesses, all that kind of good stuff. Even though it was computer science though? Yeah, so my, my, my modules uh, towards third year, I started concentrating towards e-commerce, online businesses, the human uh, interaction with computers um, mm -hmm. and the kind of psychology of it. So that kind of, leaned itself towards my computer science and then any of the hands-on stuff, right? So some of the basic SEO elements, which you learn on the job, again, being able to kind of roll your sleeves up and change metadata and all that kind of good stuff was quite handy. And my boss gave me a shot at the company that I was in where we didn't have a marketing function to set up the first marketing role. And that kind of set me off on the path I am today. Amazing. And just a quick question on that. Did you see it as like a, a natural progression into, into like the the realm of marketing at that time? At the time, I had no idea what marketing was, to be honest. So the role I had was a BDR role, which was appointment setting and generating leads. And I realized that I'm gravitating more towards the lead gen side because I just hate speaking to people on the phone. So I wasn't good at the sell side at all. And again, just tinkering with, you know, email marketing, some of the social media stuff optimizing the website, setting up events, all that kind of good stuff. I just really got a buzz out of it in terms of how our kind of actions, either physically or digitally, could persuade people to 
take uh, certain actions that benefit you. Again, that's the name of the game when it comes to lead generation. So that's what I got a buzz and 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 I still do today. You know, is 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 that changing people's behavior, which which fascinates me. Yeah, I can I can only imagine. I think it's um, it's interesting to see like how, how much of that will will almost become like increasingly important because I think there there's a lot of like uncertainty right now about like how much is is actually like human led versus like AI led in, in in the background. So I think it'd be interesting for for us to just like see how 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 that space continues to evolve over time. There's so much more I want to dig into. I think it's the best way to do it is probably in under the the lens of the key moments. So. Why don't we just jump into that straight away? What was one failure for you? There is probably too many to name. One thing that I consciously think about quite often now is around hiring and building a team. So my failure, one scenario, it happened twice and it took the second time for me to really learn from it. And that was, especially when hiring for a marketing or a growth role within a fast growing startup, you need to wear loads of different hats, but you can never get one profile or a type of person that has experience across all those areas that you need them to take ownership of. So there are some trade-offs, right? And when it comes to looking at those trade-offs, the main thing which I failed at was understanding the learning abilities putting those learnings into practice and adaptability because again you need to compromise in terms of the core skill sets you're looking for but then looking at the future looking at what kind of skill sets you're going to need in a year's time or in two years time it's hard to kind of cater for those when you're hiring so you're looking at coachability you're looking for that adaptability and so now learning through those uh, instances where I hired people that were mismatched for what we needed them to do in the near future are, are overemphasized on that coachability and adaptability and, and, and being able to navigate ambiguous environments. Um, you know, when you have those natural problem solvers, if they can prove within an interview setting or, or, or a hiring setting that they are able to tackle unknown challenges that wasn't foreseen, I think that's the main takeaway from those failures where I hired people that were mismatched for the business. That's such an interesting point because specifically in a in a fast fast growing environment, as you mentioned, or fast fast paced environment, the role is always evolving, and so the job description is literally always evolving. This is just what it is for the next sort of you know for the short term, really, but it's not going to be necessarily that for the long term. And so, what are some things that you've learned? I guess you kind of mentioned some of them right now, but like for folks tuning in as well, like what were some things that almost like a little bit nuanced that you've learned to look for in uh, in, in candidates, which, which is above and beyond seeing like the fact that they are, you know, obviously a good fit for the, for the current JD, but obviously like planning ahead as well. Yeah. So I, I, I think one thing that I've picked up on at pay pickup specifically is, is that learning element, which I mentioned earlier. So because of the nature of the business that we are, we come from a slightly academic background and heavily evolved in R&D because we're essentially creating a solution that didn't really exist before through machine learning and AI. And, you know, we were doing this before it was cool. So, so the, the whole learning element is ingrained in our culture. We genuinely celebrate failures. We have like a showcase every two weeks of talking about what went right and what went wrong. We even have like a spoof website, which we put up a couple of years ago around AI voices that went wrong. I think it's called AI voice bloopers or something like that. I haven't looked at it for some time. Oh, nice. I might check that out. 
Yeah, please do. I can't, I can't remember the exact name, but I'll definitely send you the link afterwards if, if you can't find it. But that's the extent that we go to to demonstrate how we're looking to tackle new challenges, trying to that. make the path a little bit clearer to understand what don't we know. And then the more typical stuff in terms of experimenting, testing, failing, documenting, and making sure that we actually take everyone in the company on that journey. And because that's ingrained in us, now I try to bring that into the interview process. And it probably reoccurs during different touch points in the interview process from the very beginning where we talk about how do you like to learn, what kind of communities are you a part of and all that kind of good stuff to get into the point of digging deeper in terms of how you would navigate ambiguous environments. Uh, so there isn't one silver bullet, but it's just making sure that we look at that one element around adaptability and learning from multiple angles. That's been a big takeaway for me, which I'll probably keep with me for the future. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think it's 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 interesting that it's almost like a mindset thing in term mindset shift thing in terms of like thinking about I guess both from the from the recruiter's perspective, but also from the from the candidate's perspective or the um, the marketer's perspective in the sense that you know from a, from the recruiter's perspective, if that person has failed before and how they've actually overcome that, I think this is definitely something that plays in their favor from the individual contributors' respect uh, perspective. Like they may realize that you know sometimes naturally they may shy away from talking about like failures or anything like that but specifically going into like cost-based environments these are some things that they can almost like lead with to to share that you know this is something that they've went through and this is specifically what they did afterwards as a result of that learning and i really love like what you guys were talking about what you were talking about around how you guys like equally celebrate like uh things that went well but also things that didn't go well and really taking that sort of like scientist's approach as opposed to like just you know, only celebrating some, you know, the traditional way of like only celebrating if something went the way that you want it really. Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of people preach that and talk about celebrating failures, but that just haven't come across where it lives organically within our culture. So if I can take anything away from, 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 from what I've learned here is, is again, just looking at it from multiple different angles to make sure it's organically built in, uh, in how we operate. Yeah, yeah. And it actually reminds me of something that uh, our, our most recent guest, uh, Andreas, from, who's a CMO at uh, Fractory, had mentioned, which is to not only think of your goals as like, you know, your goals, but like think of like the, the inverse of them as well, which is like how to succeed, but also how, how not to fail. And anytime you have a fail, what, I'm, what I'm, I'm trying to connect the dots here in terms of like every time th there's a failure or something that didn't pan out as expected, this is still a point in our favor as a, as a team, as an organization, because we, we've we've checked off like one more way that won't that won't work and in a way that's essentially getting us to our closer to our goal so i follow you on that all right so shifting shifting gears a little bit what what inspired in, in terms of like what's been inspiring your thinking and, and building up your um your thinking in general uh what was one book that was key for you during that journey i think one book that i've gone back to over and over again especially recommending it to 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 others is good strategy bad strategy by richard uh Rumelt. so up to, until that point where i read that book again just taking it one step back i think the, the the term strategy is is misused and overused way too much the the how, how so the, people mistake it for tactics so the, 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 especially in marketing, you're rolling out a new channel and trying out one specific tactic and they call it a strategy. But strategy is when you amalgamate different tactics and think about how they work together and how they're going to operate for you. That's the strategy. And 
different people will probably describe it differently. And that's probably one of the challenges of what strategy really is. But until that point, when I read that book, I've been a self-taught marketeer for about a decade until that point, maybe just a bit under. So I was relatively good at understanding how different levers can help us achieve X or Y. And then when it came to amalgamating those levers to form a plan or a strategy, I wasn't really good at the storytelling part of it in terms of how they roll into each other and how they can form a go-to-market strategy, for instance. And this book initially starts with very simple explanations in terms of what Richard Lee's strategy is, what it is not, and then also providing a plethora of really, really fun real-life case studies of what strategy uh, or how strategy could be applied in business setting, life setting, and often most sales and marketing tactics and terminology goes to war. War is a big concept usually used. You know, you have battle cards and you have you have frontline reporting and, you know, all these different types of nuances from war are actually uh, yeah. adopted by, by marketing. Perhaps, perhaps even like closed one and closed lost. Perhaps could absolutely. be that as well. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. There's there's so many. Once you start picking at it, you'll notice that there is just so many different elements. And then he uses some actually, you know, battle and army strategies as examples, which seem very simple, but very, very effective. I wish I could remember a couple of them, but there's definitely some really good stories in there. I'm curious, what were what was an example of like, say, how you, given the fact that you have been self-taught uh, uh, as far as like your marketing your marketing knowledge is concerned, what was like one way that you were doing things versus like after you've read the book, if you can share an example? I, th I, I think a big part of it was stakeholder management. So I didn't have the right communication tools to paint a picture for either my boss or my peers to take him along the journey in terms of how we should do something. And so I had either from experience or a hunch or, or, or through research and analytics, identify that we need to take this path and then we need to do this and then supplement it with why. Take a multi-channel campaign, for instance, or ABM. So I, I, I knew how the different pieces of puzzle potentially work in standalone elements and I knew how they could potentially play together, but I wasn't equipped enough to tell that story, make it cohesive and take other people along the journey. That was that was one of the key elements that really helped me do that. And and when I joined PaperFelp, I was the first commercial hire. So I was very working very closely with our founder CEO and I still do, especially in that setting where it's just two of us in a room before we built the team out uh, as we have now tried to take him through my thinking and that journey with me. That's where I felt truly equipped. Uh, it was this and one other element, which we'll go through, I'm sure a little bit later around course with Mark. Uh, I'm, I'm sure you've come across it. Mark Ritson's mini MBA, who's, 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 who's quite popular now. Yeah, I haven't read it, but I'm, I'm, I've, I've heard of it for sure. Yeah. Fantastic course. And, and as, a, as a mission, we can go through it in more detail, but just having those key elements to tell a story uh, in terms of how we should do something and why we should do something. I think that was the kind of aha moments for me. Yeah, yeah, I love that. And uh, before we move on to the next key moment, like, are there any key takeaways that you can share there with, um, with, with our audience that you think could really help? Because I think you've touched on a really important point of here in terms of like, sometimes as a marketer, like you come in, you, you have the ideas, you just have a hunch or you just know that this is, this is what's in the best interest of the company, but you struggle to 
explain that to like other non-marketers or naturally to the to the to the to the CEO and other leaders that you report into. And the onus is on you to be able to not only come up with a good strategy, but to and obviously you've just explained the difference between what a strategy is and what it isn't, let alone what's a good strategy. But I think it's a whole other task, isn't it, to to be able to you can have a great strategy, but if you're unable to communicate it well properly to to others, like it it's it's just as good as not having done it at all. So what were what are like some yeah, kind of like parting thoughts that you can leave on that? Um, I can I can leave it with an example. So, for instance, previously, and and still today, you know, if 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 you're going through an interview process for a senior marketing role, sometimes you would get a task where someone's looking, or the the, the hiring manager is looking for you to do a deep dive on a specific tactic. So, for instance, they believe that you know performance marketing is going to be the right channel for them to utilize, and they'll ask you to do a deep dive on that. Where once I felt confident by reading this book and then doing some of those online training to help me really think about it from a strategic point of view, it forced me to take a step back and actually, as part of the interview process, talk about, okay, let's do a very simple segmentation process. And then once we have the segmentation, we need to identify who we're going to target and when, because you may have like three different segments you're going after. So I believe that as our strategy, we should go after these guys first because we can convert them earlier turn them into case studies, which then we can utilize using these channels to break into segment number two and three. So that becomes a demonstra demonstrable way of showing how we're going to go after that specific markets rather than just saying, I'm going to overload on LinkedIn ads because that's where these people hang out. And yep. again, doing that a couple of times and seeing the other people in the room coming along the journey with me and having those stakeholder buy-ins uh, was, you know, again, a turning point. Yeah. I mean, I think I, what I like about what you said is that there's a lot of tangible stuff in there that, that people, sorry, a lot of practical stuff in there that people can apply right away. But even in terms of like the book that you shared, like um, Good Strategy, Bad Strategy, and the course, sorry, I, I miss, mistook it for a book. It's a course, the mini MBA course. We'll, uh, we'll share links to those as well in case people wanted to check them out. So thanks for sharing that. I realize you've worked... Uh, or I don't know if you've realized this, but like you've you've worked at so many different diverse companies from like the um, the paddles, the the tree twelves, all the way obviously to like paper cup. You've no doubt met a lot of people. Who was one person for you that really like shaped the the rest the rest of your journey professionally? Um, I've been asked this question before, and I've given the same answer in a couple of other podcasts in previous years. I think. One of the ones I'll always go back to is uh, Judy, uh, Judy Boniface, who was my boss. She was the CMO when I was at Mailjet. And there was a couple of key elements that she really ingrained in me um, in terms of how I want to become a CMO myself, how I want to operate on, on that level. And it wasn't necessarily specific hard skills. It was, it was her soft skills. One thing that always stayed with me out of many amazing attributes that she had was the ability to delegate tasks to people whilst making them believe it was their initiative and their idea. By asking the right questions, she would help you navigate an ambiguous scenario and come up with the answers yourself, uh, rather than her already knowing the answer, telling you that you should take that path. And because you go through that journey with her, she takes you through that journey your 
drive and 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 your buy-in is higher than it would be otherwise and then that way you have that sense of ownership you have that sense of pride that you know i've come up with this plan and i've come up with this idea so you give it 110 percent. so that way you build this very high performing marketing team not that i was high performing but just in general uh, you, you you see people really feeling invigorated and supported uh in a way that i haven't seen done as well as the way judy's done it uh in other places oh that's amazing and uh i, I want to dig a bit deeper into that because i think a lot of times like specifically for uh, a lot of the folks like tuning into the to the to the show are naturally like uh in startups sometimes they are the first marketing person um they feel like they not not that they feel like they know it all but they feel like the, the marketing is is best it's best in their hands kind of thing if, if that's correct english and so naturally they just want to tell the other person what to do, the, the, the latest recruiter or whatever. They just want to tell them, listen, let me just make your life easier. This is exactly what you need to do. Can you just do that? And I'm curious, like fr from that, from that, from your experience and, 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 you know, time obviously working with Judy, do you, do you feel like the delegation was like on the strategy level? Like what, what is to be de delegated or is it on the, on the, on the tactical level? Uh, if you understand my question. Yeah, absolutely. So. At the, at the time, I wasn't senior enough to think about uh, or own the strategy side of things as much, but you still felt a part of it. So again, being able to take some of those elements, which I mentioned earlier in terms of stakeholder management around strategy and take, taking people along the ride with you, she was really good at that. But then when it came to breaking off pieces of that strategy and giving you ownership, she was able to use those tactics, which I mentioned. So again, you felt like you can tangibly track back where you're moving the needle in terms of what your slice of the pie is and where you own it and how it's going to feed into the wider strategy. Uh, and I think that's really important, making people feel like that they're contributing to the overall strategy. First, get it the bind, but then how they can feed into it is really important. And ideally being able to break that down into even everyday tangible tasks. So for instance, we use a very simplistic version of OKRs at PaperCup. So when it comes to the overarching strategy, initially when we're putting it on for the year, which is probably a slight deviation from the previous year being at a kind of high growth stage that we are at the moment, we try to do it collectively to a degree. We have some things figured out. There are some things that are non-negotiable. And again, we explain those very thoroughly. But then when it comes to putting the OKR together in terms of the pieces of puzzle that are going to create this strategy, we do that collectively as different teams. But then we break that down. We break that down into quarterly kind of overarching activities, weekly activities, and then within sub-teams, we look at that on a very granular, regular basis. So that way, once you finish a week's work, if you wanted to, you can clearly track back how is that kind of feeding into the overarching annual strategy, which is which is really, really beneficial to make sure everyone feels like they're part of the the part of this, you know, this this big gene we're looking to build. I love that. And it, it kind of reminds me of something that I've um, that I've learned uh, some time ago from uh, uh, the literature from uh, coach Dan Sullivan. He basically created he, he's an entrepreneur coach and he created a tool called the impact filter, which uh, I'm not sure if uh, have you come across it before? No, I'm going to take a note of that. Yeah, it's it basically talks about rather than telling someone how to do something, you're basically telling them wh what the goal is, why it's important, what the impact of it will be, and then crucially, uh, the seven sort of success criteria that need to be true for this to be a for this to be a success, and then finally, 
there's a couple of things in there, but yeah, finally, basically what, what the best result looks like, what the worst result looks like. And so you're essentially almost creating a, a game, uh, which tends to drive motivation. There's been a ton of research done on like when you play, when you play a sport or, or, um, you know, a game or whatever, and there's no score being kept or, or, or there's no rules. You can you know, play tennis and the ball could bounce the ball anywhere or, or whatever. People actually lose motivation. It, it's not more fun. It's, it's less fun because there are no boundaries. And so when you when you create a game and you you say, hey, these are the boundaries, can go, you know, this is what the game is. Uh, they take you up on that game and they're able to really um, engage further. And you as the the person, the, delega- the delegator, if you will, you still get the quality that you are looking for because you've defined what things look like at the end of the day. But they also feel that they got to use their creativity, their sort of initiative, and and, and they feel a lot a lot of ownership in it because they got to do it their own way and so everyone's happy so that's something that we've we've been trying to to implement more and more internally anyway it's fascinating how that concept is so ingrained into our being as humans and i'm saying that because i have a two-year-old son um Uh, and when it comes to him at the moment so they call it terrible twos is because at two they realize they have choices and that's why they have tantrums is because they're not able to communicate their choices clearly in terms of what they want and how they want it. So as a, as a, as a role of a parent, just to make our own lives easier and reduce the amount of tantrums, which means that they feel less stressed, is, is giving them those boundaries and choices, but in such a way that they buy into it. So for instance, if I want my son to get ready to go n- to nursery, not that he gets ready on his own, but I'm like, okay, where's your shoes? Let's get your shoes. And then we're trying to get ready to go to nursery. I wouldn't necessarily ask him or tell him that we should go to nursery and now it's time to go to nursery. I would show him two of his toys and be like, okay, which toy do you want to take to nursery with you today? And then he was like, okay, I want the car. He will get the car and then now he's ready to go, which is a very simplistic version of what you just described, but it's just fascinating to see it be applied from, you know, as at such a young age all the way down to what we're talking about or our strategy. Yeah, well well played. I'll keep that tactic for, for future reference for sure. Uh... <laughs> In terms, in terms of shifting gears a little bit, maybe closer to like modern day, modern day time, modern day Amir, what was one decision that you feel made that really kind of set the, the trajectory for everything else? One of the more recent ones, I think, was a couple of years ago after we went through a thorough segmentation and kind of targeting process, trying to identify where we're going to apply our solution. Because when it comes to what we provide as a, as an AI dubbing service, it could be applied to many different scenarios. You know, you have videos from e-learning to media companies to large enterprises, even podcasts such as this. So once we went through that exercise and started looking at it from different lenses in terms of where we should play, we doubled down on the media industry just because the business is a lot more repeatable, the value of the content is higher, and a few other reasons. And then once we started going through a positioning and messaging exercise after doing some customer interviews, learning their lingo, understanding how they speak and how they would search and how they would identify what the right solution is for them, we started to play some early bets on AI dubbing. It seems like a no-brainer now, but at the time for us, it was a relatively big choice because it meant shunning away very large pools of uh, potential customers in the future in those segments which we're not now focusing on. And there was no one else calling themselves AI dubbing. And how, how long ago was that, just for context? Just over two years ago. So at the time, it was we were going by AI-powered video localization or, you know, something around synthetic voices. And dubbing is a very media-heavy term. 
which doesn't necessarily exist in enterprise vocab. Uh, long story short, we played some early bets. So we started to hone our messaging on that after a first kind of two, three months, supplanting this with a lot of PR and education. We actually started to see our conversion rates in terms of demo requests increase by 80%. And now since the big... And this uh, happened almost because of narrowing as opposed to saying, hey, we're for everyone. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, narrowing that down for sure. Um, yeah. Understanding that you can't just make the change and expect people to come. We still had to do a lot of education. So how did we do education? We invested in PR. We did a lot of content content work, loads of SEO and all that kind of good stuff. And then once we start tracking AI dubbing as a search term, generating traffic for us, it started to look really, really attractive. And now we have this plethora of you know two-man bands that use third-party APIs uh, from the big guys and they house it in the software and call themselves AI dubbing who adopted what we started quite some time ago. It works in our before benefit. It, cool, it has yeah. its downsides, but exactly, yeah, before it was cool. It has its benefits because they're helping educate the markets further with us. Yeah. But at the same time, my goal is to become synonymous with AI dubbing over time, just like how HubSpot, uh, HubSpot invented the term inbound marketing. And now when you think inbound, you would think HubSpot or how MailChimp kind of really introduced email marketing to so many different people. And again, they're quite synonymous with that. Yeah. My my aim is to become synonymous with AI dubbing, and I think we're halfway there. Yeah, that that it's all. It, it seems like there was a great deal of like demand gen that you guys had to do on on your part because I would assume, not uh, not to get too tactical, but like AI dubbing, like the search volume for that wasn't like this. What like did you guys more or less? Do you feel like you've almost like pioneered or sort of invented the the term really? We didn't invent it. I can't take that accolade. Um, there there, there were other people using the term AI dubbing, probably maybe more on the academic side, but uh, I feel like we were one of the early pioneers for sure. So at the time when we implemented AI dubbing into our SEO and content strategy in yeah. 2001, uh, 2021, sorry, search terms were almost zero. So no one was searching for it. And now it's getting into the hundreds and early thousands, uh, which is which is fantastic. And again, right. complementing that with the storytelling through PR, public speaking, and also trying to capture the top search results through paid ads. Again, we're just trying to position ourselves that way. And this is only made happen through that one key decision that we made collectively, placing that early bet on AI dubbing and just trying to own that as much as we can. At any point, did you feel like, even though theoretically it made sense, were there any concerns that you're, you know, you're betting the farm as a team in the one direction as opposed to like all these other equally shiny things out there? Yeah, absolutely. So at the, at the time, our, our focus was across three different segments rather than doubling down on media. So okay. we had big customers on the enterprise side who have a tremendous amount of training and uh, marketing content who they were localizing. We had a handful of customers uh, as part of e-learning platforms, uh, some of the big ones that you could imagine. So we were all basically turning our back on them in terms of our messaging overnight because they don't use the term dubbing. They're, they're, they're very instilled in localization. Sure, yeah. So yeah, it was it was it was it was a it was a concerning decision to begin with, but being at an early stage startup, you can afford to do those things. So that's why you should definitely do them earlier than later. Yeah, makes sense. Um, do you ever hear about? Uh, there's been a lot of like uh, 
attention around some of uh, Jeff Bezos' um, shareholder notes. I think someone published them on Twitter and it kind of went viral uh, some time ago. And in one of them, he talks about, you know, one of the reasons why Amazon is successful is they get really clear on making uh, type one and type two decisions. Type one decisions are kind of like one way, like you make a decision and you, that's that's basically it. Whereas two, uh, type two decisions are almost like uh, reversible decisions where it is a decision, but listen, like if it doesn't pan out, like we can always like just revert that or do something else. He was making the case that like most people mistake type two decisions for, for type one decisions and that most decisions you tend to make are type two decisions where, listen, like if it doesn't work out, you could pivot. Did you guys feel, because I'm, 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 I'm trying to put myself in the position of like uh, a lot of uh, the people tuning in who might be in the midst of like a, um, you know, a, a brand like reposition or something of the sort. Did you feel like at the time this was a, a type one or a type two decision for you guys? I think definitely type two. I, I, the, I, 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 yeah, I, I, I would be foolish to say if it was type one. I think I think we always knew that it's a type two decision, but at what cost? I think that's the main thing that you need to think about. Again, young startup, we were about to go for Series A. So again, it wasn't that we were flush with cash. Those types of mistakes, they, they would just cost you more in, in time and resource. So it's just a matter of evaluating at what cost. And this was potentially not as grave as maybe a type two decision we would have made in terms of our product development, because the cost of that would have been a lot more grave than this one would have been. So it definitely didn't seem like a catastrophic type of decision to make. But again, that stakeholder management element of it was was quite important to take people through that journey, explain to them why we're we doing it, how we're we doing it, what's the time frame for us to actually uh, see if this is working for us or not. And you're absolutely right. You know, it's, it's, it's again, painting a picture in terms of how reversible this can be. Yeah. And it's amazing, like what, what you guys have have uh, have achieved since making that decision as paper cup. So shifting gears, uh, our last key moment, what was one accomplishment for you that may not have been necessarily the flashiest thing uh, on the external, but for you, it just hit different? That's a difficult one. Be, being a cynic, which I mentioned earlier, I, I tried not to dwell too much on successes as this big one thing. I see them very incrementally. Yeah. Uh, um, not. <laughs> I, 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 I'll keep it simple and go back to an example I gave earlier, I think. One, one, one accomplishment, again, which, which uh, helps me go through uh, some of the examples which I mentioned now and think the way around strategy um, probably comes around Mark Ritson, Mark Ritson's mini MBA as, as, as a learning point. Um, so completing that course, again, learning as an adult is so much more different learning as, 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 as a teenager or, or, or a younger person. Yeah, in uh, terms of like easier or harder? Just different, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's harder in terms of uh, time constraints because you have so many other responsibilities, but it's a little bit easier because you're almost 100% bought into the concept. It's not necessarily being enforced on you like how early education is. Sure. At the same time, with something as tangible as as as, as Mark's uh, mini MBA, you're able to uh, kind of put it into practice during your day-to-day job. That was a pinnacle moment for me, mainly because that was towards the end of my tenure at, at, at Paddle, um, and I was just interviewing for Treatwell. And 
Tree World was a big step up for me just because I was going from like a hybrid IC role and managing a team going into a 100% strategic role when I was managing a team of 10. Mm-hmm. So becoming better at strategy was key. Um, and I feel like that course really equipped me to just put that presentation together, talking about my mandates uh, at Tree World in terms of how I would go about doing things which got me the role and 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 once we started executing on it actually started to yield some really good early results so looking back at my you know achievements in the last 5 years and accomplishments learning and going through uh, a course as an adult um, and then putting that into good use was was something that uh, that, that that I was proud of yeah well said it's almost like the the seed that sort of like put everything else into got everything else growing or put everything yeah for sure here that really put everything else in motion really um that that's amazing and i think i think it it, it kind of speaks to like it, it it's very i guess akin to like even like your earlier journey in terms of like continuing to be self-taught like i i studied uh i wish i studied computer science in college but i actually studied uh, marketing and you know to, to to no fault of the of the university i said that i studied in the, the first, the day that I really started learning marketing was the day that I graduated. I think I, shortly before I graduated, I uh, got introduced to Seth Godin and like my life, my life kind of was never the same uh, after that. And then from there, I started to, to learn a lot more things. But like, I think um, you, you touched on a really important point that like, obviously when you're, when you're older, you, like you don't have, you don't need to be motivated that like studying something is, uh, you know, start getting new knowledge is something that's in your best interest. I think sometimes it could just be super challenging to figure out who to trust or like what source to go after and stuff like that. And I think given, given your, you know, you know, your, your, your tenure and, and, and track record, I think, uh, the mini MBAs, is definitely something that, uh, I imagine a lot of people would, uh, would probably look into after this. I hope so. Yeah. I think to be honest, when, when, when people become, uh, seasoned in their respective fields, sometimes maybe you forget how you got there and and what kept you going through that journey uh that's why i really love the format of this podcast because this is really forced me to kind of look back at those as you mentioned key moments of 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 how i got that from you know stage one to stage two and stage three and so on. looking at the people that inspired me looking at the the learnings and the failures so i think i think everyone should do this exercise for themselves if not get invited to your podcast because i think it's it's, it's really important to look back with these uh, key moments in mind yeah i mean especially when like a lot of folks naturally are you know if, if, if you're if you're working in a startup if you're in marketing you're it's safe to say you are an ambitious person and fortunately a big part of that is like the goalpost always gets moved you're always like sort of you're doing a good job if you're staying in the present but most of the time you're you're just focused on the future, let alone the present, let alone the past, to your point. And uh, it's always important to just kind of reflect back on like what's been working, what's been working well so far, um, and perhaps like what needs work so that you can sort of, yeah, cast future cast that into, into, into the, into the future. So yeah, I guess in closing, where, where can people find you? And was there anything that you wanted to share as, as yourself or as a paper cup with our audience? In terms of finding me, I'm probably the most active on on LinkedIn these days. Uh, as much as I hate to admit it, I, ju- I just don't have time to 
be as present on on some other social platforms. But we have some really cool meetups uh, in London. I'm part of a couple of uh, communities where uh, a whole bunch of marketeers from all different walks of life hang out. And I I call it marketing therapy, where we talk about all of our different (laughs) challenges and and learn about our bosses and all that kind of good stuff. Um, So if you're in London, definitely hit me up and and I'll invite you to one of these uh, meetups, which are are really, really fun to attend. Otherwise, uh, I'm on LinkedIn and in terms of um, any any passing wisdom or anything I can help with uh, with with any of your listeners, I'm 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 more than happy to uh, be available for conversations around anything around B two B marketing. I feel like that's 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 my forte. And as a failed engineer, so I did mechanical engineering before I did computer science. As a failed engineer, I like I like to problem solve. So working with other people's problems. I find it very invigorating just because it's not that I'm just helping someone else, but very selfishly it makes me look at my own problems uh, from a different angle and, and look at my own challenges from a different perspective. Uh, so it's definitely a win-win situation. I love that. Awesome. Well, Amir, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, it's a pleasure. And uh, yeah, we'll see you soon. Thank you so much, Karim. Have a good day.